0: Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of In The Ring with Acacia Courtney. So glad to have you with me today. It is the Preakness edition of this show and I'm sorry that this episode is a little bit late. Um, life happens, you know, things happen. But we've got it out now and I'm excited about this one. going to talk to some connections from the Preakness Stakes and the Black-Eyed Susan. We can't forget about the Phillies on Friday. Also going to talk to my co-host at the Maryland Jockey Club, Naomi Tucker, who is uh, in Maryland every day, knows the circuit really, really well. And kind of attack, handicapping the Preakness from a pedigree standpoint. So I think it'll be really fun. I hope you enjoy. And there are plenty of interesting stories as far as the horses that were bought, their pedigrees in these big races, and talking about that three-year-old crop for both the Colts and the Phillies. So um, get ready. We've got a fun show coming up here on In the Ring, and we'll get right to it. Very happy to be joined now by Kirk Wyckoff of Three Diamonds Farm as Army wife is getting ready for her try in the Black Eyed Susan. Kirk, thanks for joining me today. Excited to talk about your filly. Glad
1: to be here. Thank you for having me.
0: Now this is a Philly. Um, well, first of all, she had a nightmare trip last time in the gazelle, um, uh, facing obviously a really nice horse and search results. How has she done coming out of that race leading into the black eyed Susan? And, um, what, did, what was kind of your takeaway from that race?
1: Um, well, she, amen. To she had a nightmare trip. I don't, I don't know how you get in that much trouble in a six horse field. Um, but you know, she's, uh, a late running type got a lot of stamina and, and, you know, we frankly felt she could have been second in that race. If she didn't get squeezed in the lane, but she's come out of the race. Well, um, as it turns out, we, you know, we could have entered the Oaks as an also eligible and drawn in, Mm -hmm. but we knew we'd have the outside post. And because the gazelle was only three weeks after her win at Gulfstream, we decided to give her the time and point for the black ice.
0: Now she did win that race going a mile at Gulfstream off a layoff too. I mean, how encouraging was that is all of a sudden it's kind of, I'm sure like, wow, we have a three-year-old filly that can be a contender here.
1: Yeah. We've known since her win last year at Churchill and then Mm -hmm. the second in the allowance race that she was a two-turn dirt filly. Mm -hmm. Um, We got her back in training with, uh, the hopes of making the Gulfstream Oaks uh, as our second start and she had a, a, a little bit of a cold in February and so we missed a work or two so we had to make the decision whether to go on to an allowance race or straight to the stake and and we wanted an allowance race and frankly that Friday at goldstream they had already uh, they had already used allowance races at the fairgrounds in Oaklawn in New York and that was that was our last chance to get her in. So the mile was probably a little too short, and mm-hmm. uh, she got a very confident ride, and uh, we had a very fortunate head bob in that in that race. Mm-hmm.
0: And she was very game that day. She actually started her career on turf in her first couple of starts, and when you just kind of look at the pedigree with the declaration of war and the arch on the bottom side, was there always a thought in the back of your mind to maybe try her on the dirt?
1: Yeah. So uh, her first three starts were on turf. Um, Mike Mike Maker obviously loves the turf and uh, believes all horses can run well on it. She's a very large filly. She's Mm -hmm. probably 17 hands, has been since a two-year-old. And what I noticed in her two-turn start at Saratoga on the turf, where we were very confident she had the ability to win, is that because of her size, uh, when there was any give in the ground, she didn't handle the footing well. She bobbled a little bit, mm-hmm. and that's why we came back on the dirt. We had, we, if you look back in her work, she actually uh, worked very fast at Saratoga on the dirt in August, I think, 45 and 3. Wow. Um, so we knew, we knew she could handle the dirt, and, and we probably went one turf start too far.
0: And she did break her maiden on the dirt at Churchill, as you mentioned. And um, it's been kind of fun for me to follow her because I saw her at Saratoga and then down in Florida, too. And it feels like as a three-year-old now, she's really kind of blossomed. She's filled out even more, and she really does have a lot of size to her. Um, What's kind of the feeling coming into this as she gets to go the nine furlongs for the second time?
1: Yeah, Mike says she's like a cult. So Mm -hmm. she's, uh, uh, well, very kind, very sturdy. Um, she's not going to dazzle you with her gate speed, but the longer it gets, she just keeps coming. So I think in, in terms of Joel Rosario and post one here, we, we really like our chances. There's plenty of speed in the race. Um, she doesn't have any problem with dirt in her face and this is a long race, uh, but she's run this distance in the gazelle and, and, but for that, uh, you know, mishap in the stretch, um, she was, she was close
0: Oh, as you mentioned, she will handle the distance. What about the inside post for her? You do have Joelle Rosario, who's so good at saving ground. So, given that she is a closer, is that kind of a non-issue for you going the nine furlongs with the inside?
1: I mean, look, it's an it's a non-issue if unless there's a traffic jam at the head of the lane. Uh, Joel's pretty patient, and I'm sure he'll find a spot. And uh, she she won't have any problem making her own spot, given her size, but uh, you know, to see how the race sets up. I, I don't think it'll be a bunched up pack. Uh, We obviously saw what Johnny Velasquez did in the derby. And I expect him from post 10 to try and do the same thing on beautiful gift. Um, And there's other speed to go with him, So I think it sets up for a pretty good, good trip for her. And, And Joel will find a way through for the last uh, the last quarter mile at Bimlico.
0: Yeah, he, he's so good at uh, saving something for the stretch and, and makes it fun to watch hey, as well. Yeah, it's definitely uh, one of his best features. Um, and it's funny, I was actually just looking, it just kind of occurred to me that there's a lot of similarities in the pedigree to your Breeders' Cup juvenile turf winner in Fire at Will, who's also by declaration at war, uh, Declaration of war. Was that something that you've kind of grown to like, that kind of pedigree and, and those kinds of crosses?
1: Um, so uh, Empire of War is now five. We bred him. I think he was the first or maybe the second stakes winner for Declaration of War in this mm-hmm. country. So when they uh, chose to export him um, two years ago at Keeneland, like we always look for Kittens Joy progeny, we were also looking for Declaration of War progeny, um, and they got. Scarcer and scarcer, and you, usually uh, when, when we're done bidding at Keeneland, it's Donato Lani and I looking at each other, deciding which one's going to take that one home. Um, so he's been a very good sire. Mm-hmm. I, I would say, I would call your attention to the similarity she has to Decorated Invader, mm-hmm. um, You know, who was frankly running against Field Pass the year before, and we picked out that cross of Declaration of War over Arch, um, and it obviously was very successful for Chris, uh, Chris Clamont and, uh, I believe it's the West Point connection. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and this Philly worked very good for grassroots training at the two-year-old sale, you know, of, uh, of last year of nine, of 20. Mm-hmm. Um, and then this is the last crop. So if, if you go to OBS in April, um, the most expensive declaration of war is also out of an arch mare, which Three Diamonds purchased from Randy Miles. Uh, and uh, he's he's just a star. He's in training at Keeneland now with uh, Mike, Mike Baker.
0: Oh, very exciting. We love the cross yeah that that's exciting for sure and as you mentioned purchased at uh, the two-year-old sales like this philly was last year of course last year in 2020 um, a lot of the two-year-old sales pushed back and so army wife at the obs april sale which happened a little bit later than that yep. but um what, what are some of the things that you look for at those two-year-old sales when buying? Because I know that you're also very active in the horses of racing age sales, for instance. So when you're kind of focused on the two-year-olds, what are some of the things that you are interested in adding to your stable? Um, look,
1: our, our, our Three Diamonds business plan is not to buy uh, you know, expensive horses that compete on dirt at long distances. It's just out of our budget. Those horses are soaked up by the syndicates and the, you know, the the more affluent owners. So we look we look for horses that can go two turns, typically with some turf breeding, and and we look at some value. Um, it could be value in the pedigree. Uh, it could be value in the way it worked, and it can be value in terms of veterinary issues that we can live with. Mm-hmm. That you know other. Agents that are buying for owners can't live with. We we know we know horses are animals and they have lots of little things that don't really prevent them from racing. So, you know, one of those examples was uh here in three weeks ago in O'Cala, the fourth day of raising on Thursday there was a fifteen mile an hour headwind Mm -hmm. for those two hundred horses that day. And the times went up two fifths of a second. Well we bought one horse and that would have been the third day of the sale, even though it was the fifth priest day, you know, Mm -hmm. you know, we bought one horse the first two days of the sale, Tuesday and Wednesday. And Thursday came with that headwind into the horse's faces. We bought seven horses. Um, and so, you know, our view is those horses were just as fast as the horses the prior two days. Mm -hmm. Um, but, um, you know, other owners wouldn't want a horse to work 10 or 3 or 10 and 4. So we're, we took advantage, we hope we took advantage of that value.
0: I always love uh, speaking to you, Kirk, about your horses, because, um, you know, you, you really understand it from a lot of different angles, too, and are and a true student of the game as well, um, as, as we all are, and you're always kind of learning in this industry. When you first started really kind of buying horses and building up the stable even more, how did you kind of start to learn the pedigrees and, and, and learn the ways of the sales on an even deeper level?
1: Um, well, the, the pedigrees is because my son and I are both avid handicappers, and mm-hmm. so we probably handicap, you know, 10 cards a week and, and you know, wager on pick sixes and pick fives and pick fours. So we know what trainers are winning, what riders are winning, and what pedigrees are winning. And, and there are lots of stallions that we have owned a horse by that we wouldn't – we, we usually wouldn't bet on we certainly wouldn't claim Mm -hmm. and and so that carries over into the yearling and the two-year-old sales I would say the learning the sales for me is very enjoyable I love to be at a horse sale but Mm -hmm. it was also the only way I could really see what was going on and who was you know sharp about picking out horses and and we certainly use a couple of the sharper agents to help us out but uh, I just got to tell you, when I went back to the two-year-old sales 10 or 12 years ago, um, I arrived there, and I was 100% sure that I was the only one person on the grounds who didn't know who the fastest and best horses were. (laughs) And, And so that I was at a huge disadvantage. What I have come to learn over the last 12 years is no one knows <laughs> who the fastest and best horses are oh yeah or those would be the only ones that got sold and and that no one frankly includes the consigners that have bought them and raised them and trained them and broken them so you know we endev- I, I endeavor to partner with two of the consigners I consider the most astute in terms of Uh, identifying resources and that's Karen Dunn at Wavertree and Mm. Dave McCaffrey at grassroots, not only did a great job breaking and training, but they live with the horses. And so basically they have to pass on a horse's ability in their view. Now that only gets you a quarter of a mile or three eighths of a mile. Mm. Uh, Pedigree gets you some of the rest. Gallop outs, get
0: you some of the rest and luck gets you some of the rest. Sure. um,
1: I chose to partner with smart people instead of trying to learn it all ourselves.
0: Now it's been a big year for your stable, of course, fire at will in the breeders cup. And, um, we, we've seen a lot of the horses in your silks really, really successful. And now with a big chance in the black eyed Susan, tell me a little bit about winning and being involved in those big races, like the breeders cup, like the Pegasus world cup, black eyed Susan coming up. How meaningful is that to you?
1: Um, look, it's, it's great fun. Our, our, we love winning races. We love winning Wednesday races and Saturday and Sunday races. I think we've become more patient. Um, for instance, running army wife in a allowance race, not right in a state mm-hmm. we've, uh, you know, Mike and Mike and Todd and Mike Trombetta have helped us understand that horses build up to a crescendo, but you, you want to run on Saturdays and Sundays and in bigger races and, and, you know, we're proud to do that, and we usually do it on turf, mm-hmm. And uh, and that's because that's where we can compete with the budget we've laid out. Uh, so a chance to run, you know, a two-turn meaningful race on dirt, uh, particularly with a filly,
0: mm-hmm. is,
1: is very exciting.
0: Now I have to ask you, too, because I know you are a, a, a handicapper and a good one at that, too. Um, did you look at the Friday Pimlico card at all? Because it's got some big fields.
1: Um. I didn't I honestly haven't looked at it I looked at the dinner party because yep. we were thinking about going in that and um, we also I also looked at the Philly race where we had enjoy it while you can but mm-hmm. with with me and Mary in that race mm-hmm. I thought she was a standout in the nomination but that's all I did
0: All right. Well, I hope that uh, you do have some winners and particularly Army Wife in the Black Eyed Susan this weekend. And Kirk, I really appreciate the time and always, always fun speaking to you.
1: All right. Well, anything we can do to help promote the sport, we're happy to help out with. Thank you so much.
0: My friend and fellow podcaster on In The Money Media, Naomi Tucker, joins me now as we're getting ready for the 146th running of the Preakness Stakes. And Naomi, I know we've been really busy handicapping, following horses all week, and uh, just doing all of the things for Preakness 146. And um, this Three-year-old crop has been an interesting one, to say the least. Just tell me kind of your first impressions as this is your second time covering the Preakness.
2: Well, this year is very different from last year. Of course, we are still uh, in the middle of a pandemic, but we are looking towards uh, the bright light at the end of the tunnel. We, we get fans coming back to the Preakness. I think we've got a limit of about 10,000, whereas last year, no fans, uh, completely quiet. And that was my first ever Preakness. So that was, that was a tricky one when it came to then And of course the Triple Crown being in a different order, the Preakness was the final leg of the Triple Crown. The Belmont was first, then the Kentucky Derby winner. So we ended up having the Belmont winner face the Kentucky Derby winner uh, in the Kentucky Derby. And of course, Authentic came out on top. Then he came to the Preakness and we had a Swiss skydiver show us all what she, she was made of and becoming the sixth filly ever to win the Preakness. So if I'm going to be honest, that is, you know, a tough billing to live up to. That Mm -hmm. was a phenomenal renewal. And yes, we have the uh, horse that came first in the Kentucky Derby in here, in Medina Spirit, of course, have... Been, you know, have been some things that have come up uh, throughout the week, a little bit of a cloud around Medina's spirit, uh, very tight testing protocols uh, as put forward by the Stronic group to make sure that uh, the horses running are all running under, you know, legal circumstances and, and doing the right thing with due process involved as well. So, of course, going into this Preakness is very different from last year. Last year, you know, there were different things that we focused on, and perhaps also the group that is going in here is, is slightly different. Uh, For example, we have no filly in here. It's quite the shame. Really. I would have loved to have seen another girl try to beat the boys. Um, but all in all, um, we've seen these horses train in the morning, definitely a couple of standouts and very much looking forward to the 146th running.
0: Well, we've got a field of 10, and since my podcast kind of focuses on the sales and pedigrees, breeding, I thought it would be kind of fun for us to – Combine the two, and we're handicapping all of the races this week, so handicapping from a pedigree standpoint. And we'll go through a couple of horses today that we've both seen physically and have studied their pedigrees. Um, you know, I'm a pedigree nerd, and I've looked over everything a million times, <laughs> and I know that you've obviously done your research, as you always do, too. So um, the horse that crossed the wire first in the Kentucky Derby in Medina Spirit, he's Got an interesting pedigree, to say the least, is he's by Protonico, who he won the Discovery, the Ali Sheba, the Smarty Jones, Ben Ali. He was never really kind of that marquee grade one winning type of horse that you thought immediately would be a classic sire.
2: No, I mean, this is definitely an outlier for his side. Indeed, uh, Protonico won the Ali Sheba. He could stay the mile and the eighth. None of his top progeny, except for this fella, ha- have done very well or exceptionally when going long. He, in a way, he's been hence coined an overachiever. He was purchased for a thousand dollars at the yearling sales, and that doesn't ha- like I, I can't remember when there was a Kentucky Derby winner that was purchased for a thousand dollars as a yearling, especially in today's day and age where we do pay good money for the best bred horses in hopes of reaching Kentucky Derby glory. So the fact that Medina's spirit showed us all that, that not necessarily has to be the case is wonderful, but he isn't Outstanding when you look at his page, and that also explains why he was available for for that kind of money. If you look at his dam, uh, she's her name is Mongolian Chanza. She's by Brilliant Speed. She didn't break her maiden until her her fourth star and that was on the All Weather at Presque Isle Down. So she never really did much after that. And then Medina Spirit is her first fall, and Mongolian Chanta, if I say that correctly, is out of bridal and she only ran once and, and didn't break her maiden. So on the dam side there isn't you know a classic type mare like we were talking about a daughter of questing on my podcast that that isn't the case but that does give you hope that anyone wanting to breed a classic winner if they pair the horses right and have a bit of luck could strike gold and gail rice in florida has done so so for a small-time breeder like that, that that's an amazing story mm-hmm. to me. And unfortunately, um, from what I've heard and read, they were there were certain circumstances that forced them to to put this colt through the sales, and hence he was sold as a youngster, and then was sold at OBS as well as a two-year-old, where he was sold for thirty-five grand. To me, it's a beautiful story, and and means that even the smaller breeder, the smaller owner, someone that doesn't have that much money to spend can still, you know, box it with the heavyweights, the, the people that do have $300,000, 400000 500000 to spend on a, on a yearling. So I think it's a wonderful story. But yes, he's, you know, he, he isn't bred like some of the others in here are. And that it was reflected by his sales price and possibly also by his physical. He, he isn't, you know, an, an incredibly exceptionally well-balanced horse. He isn't the smoothest mover from what I've seen he's gritty and he's got heart and and he showed us all uh, in the Kentucky Derby
0: he did he was aggressively ridden. he dug in he was really really game and you wonder if he does just exactly the same thing once again purchased by Gary Young, who's very, very sharp, for 35000 I don't know if he knew then. He was purchasing the Kentucky Derby winner, <laughs> um, who's a, a, a Florida bred too. And, mm-hmm. and just quickly to kind of circle back, which you said with Gail Rice, I thought this was amazing that she only had three mayors. One produced Medina Spirit. Another one produced Speech, who was also a grade one winner. And she, of course, is the mother of Taylor Rice, who's now married to Uh, Jose Ortiz, um, related to Linda Rice, Kevin Rice, the whole family. The Rice family is just, I mean, horse racing is in their veins and and everything that they've contributed to the sport is incredible.
2: I mean, that to me sounds like an incredible family to have dinner with in yeah, the evening like that, can there's we,
0: your pedigree page right right there, yeah actually.
2: can we go and sit at their dinner table and just listen to what they're discussing because I'll part I'd like to make some notes I think
0: <laughs> <laughs> well Bob Baffert does have two in here concert tour the other one as he is drawn to the outside and um Is a cult by Street Sense who was very precocious and was actually second in the Preakness himself too. Mm -hmm. So uh, you obviously on the top side have that good influence. Of course, winner of the Kentucky Derby did not get the triple crown finishing second in the Preakness, but you have that influence on the top side that would make you think, okay, this is a classic horse.
2: Yeah, Street Sense won the Kentucky Derby and then got beaten by Curlin, of course, Mm -hmm. Steve Asmussen, uh, Rachel Alexandra, Curlin. He's uh, bringing Midnight Bourbon in here again as well. And just looking at Street Sense uh, as a physical, I got the pleasure uh, to spend some time with Godolphin USA and I got to work with some of their stallions. And he's just a beautiful, very strong looking individual and has produced runners that can, you know, stay these classic distances. I'm not going to say he, you know, he's an out and out. We're going to give you a mile and a half horse. Cause he's not, that is not how he's built. That's not what he won over, but you know, he had McKinsey who won the Whitney he Had Maxfield, who I absolutely love, of course, in training uh, with Brendan Walsh. Interesting part is that uh, Concerto he's a homebred for Gary and Mary West, who of course have been uh, staunch sh- supporters of the horse racing industry. He's out of a Tappet Dam. Of course, we know, Tappet was the perennial leading sire here in the US. And she didn't break her maiden until I think it was the 12th start, her, her final career start, uh, over six furlong on wet, fast ground at Churchill Down. So she, you know, she was campaigned going longer, but that didn't seem to do the trick for her. She was campaigned on the turf as well. So clearly a, a sort of a, a, quite an intriguing dam to me, perhaps mm. not a world beater, like like we've talked about before. we Not these grade one or grade two winning mares. Uh, interesting part too, she's out of a claiming mare, sort of a claiming, mm-hmm. nickel claiming level mare. So she isn't bred as elitely as, as some of the others are here. But the point I'm trying to make here though, is that even though sometimes you have these falls out of absolutely stellar mares, life-changing mares on the track, they don't always tend to pass that along. Uh, we do see it frequently with these absolute top mares. Think of Tenyada. Think of Wings. They haven't produced anything that they've. It seems to me sometimes they left their talent on the track. In terms, they gave their all, and then you see these mares that are either lightly erased. now. I think uh, pure purse strings is a little bit heavier race than uh, I would ha- ha- use as a typical example. But showed that she can win, showed that she can run, showed she had some versatility. She ran second going long on the turf. She ran second going long on the dirt at at Oakland Park. But she, yeah, it's an interesting pedigree. She isn't an out and out world beater. And just looking at Concenture from a physical perspective, to me, he's leggier and taller than Street Sense. So I am trying to kind of place him within his breeding, but it's clearly worked.
0: I think you get some of the the Tappet influence there. I mean, mm. he's not gray, but no. <laughs> he's very, very, very keen in the morning. I mean, he's not a typical Tappet, but you do get some of those influences in there. You've also got a call by Tisnow in Midnight Bourbon. Um, of course, Tisnow himself could just run forever, winner of the Breeders' Cup Classic yes. twice. Um So there is immediately a stallion that you would think um, would be a good influence. And also just reading up on him and when he sold at the Keeneland September sale as a yearling, I had read too that they felt that a lot of the potential buyers were intrigued by him because he looked like Tiz now
2: that That I love to hear, I mean, yeah. clearly, if he sold for over half a million, he must have been an absolutely exceptionally looking mm-hmm. individual. tis now, I think it was standing for about forty grand at the time now, his half brother Gervin did win the two thousand and seventeen Haskell, so clearly he he 's well bred, but to to still to warrant that type of money if you are a cult and we 're talking not about a filly with residual value uh, in terms mm-hmm. of broodmare, you want to be a looker. And I feel like we see that back on track. Midnight Bourbon to me is an absolute standout individual in terms of the way he's balanced, the way he's prepared by Steve. He's done a marvelous job with him. Just very, very well muscled. To me, there is no distance, uh, no distance question here at all. I think he's going to see this out perfectly, but we're quite similar on him here. We we <laughs> think that this horse uh, is very well placed in this uh, preakness. And as you mentioned, just bred to go the distance indeed by, by now, Of course, he won the British, uh, British Cup Classic, Santa Anita Handicap, just so comfortably that Tisnow just did everything comfortably. He had such a high cruising speed. I I like the breeding. I, I think this, this was a very, very well-made match.
0: Yeah, I agree. The mare has been such a good producer, um, which is funny given that she actually never raced. And you mentioned Gervin, who was uh, trained by Joe Sharp. I and mean, when you start looking back even through the second generation, the second dam, Catch My Fancy, was more of a sprinter. But obviously, Catch the Moon, the dam of Midnight Bourbon, has turned out to be such a good brood mare. And it's amazing. Sometimes you kind of see outliers, one really good graded stakes horse, whereas she's produced now three graded stakes winners.
2: It's it's incredible, right? You got to love to see these mares doing that. And it's interesting cuz yeah, she was unraced, but if you go back to her dam, the fact that that was a, a sprinting stakes winner to me you see that back a little bit in Midnight Bird, the way that he's muscled, the way that he presents himself. He has that sort of that staying tis now over him, but then a little bit of sprint, a little bit of sort of, you know, that bigger type of muscle, that short twist muscle that we like mm-hmm. to see. But you don't want too much on that. We, we were talking about a horse like um, Concert Tour and Authentic being taller, lighter two turns midnight bourbon is a bit different in that perspective he has got that little bit of sprinter vibe to him but as we said that top top level tis now to me that balances that out perfectly
0: now, another interesting pedigree one is a long shot, but that's the one Ram, who's by American Pharaoh, triple crown winner. So obviously he can handle the Preakness, no problem. <laughs> um, and on the bottom side, it's another mare that's been a good producer. The biggest sibling was Coalfront, who was a very good miler. Um, so that makes this kind of interesting, too, I think, from a pedigree standpoint.
2: Uh, Ram to me is a very intriguing horse. I got the chance to speak with coach uh, Dwayne Lucas and I asked him if he thought that the distance would be a problem for him, because to me, just looking at him, the kind of physical as he presents, he looks like a sprinter to me. He, he mm-hmm. kind of, you know, he he's downward build. He hits the ground quite hard. He really sort of grabs into it. That to me resembles a, a sprinter, of course. American pharaoh we we know he can stay for days and and that isn't the issue but then if you do look on the dam side now the dam was on race but he is a half brother uh, stay thirsty society of Colfront. and as you mentioned Colfront was an out and out miler uh, he mm-hmm. did win over a mile and 16 at oakland park as well in in the razorback but to me he was best suited sticking to the mile, like even the mile in eighth, I think, was a step too far. I got the chance to to see him when he won the uh, Group Two Godolphin Mao at Meydan, mm-hmm. which was you know an absolute phenomenal feat, and that was with um, Jose Ortiz aboard, who was his first time riding uh, in Dubai, and he just you know absolutely took to it like a fish to water, as of course expected, but. Mm-hmm. To me, Colfront looking the way he looked like a miler and Ram to me looks more like a sprinter even than Colfront does. So I don't think Ram would like the distance. But then when asking Dwayne Lucas, he completely disagreed with me and said, no, the distance is going to help him. By American Fair, he's going to get only better with distance. Now... I don't think it's a good idea for me to disagree with a man who's won six Preaknesses and holds the record for most runners in it, 44 starters. So I kind of disagree, but also (laughs) I'm sure he's going to prove me wrong. (laughs)
0: The one and only Dwayne Lucas. (laughs) I love having him here um, at Pimlico for sure. Well, it'll be an interesting Preakness. That's one thing we know, Naomi, and it's been fun kind of diving a little bit deeper into these pedigrees. And there are some interesting ones in this field. And thanks for joining me. Looking forward to another great Preakness with you.
2: You're welcome. And same here. Really looking forward to Preakness 146.
0: Well, that will do it for another episode of In the Ring with Acacia Courtney. I hope that you enjoyed learning from the guests today and uh, talking a little bit of pedigree with the Preakness steaks. This will be my Fifth year, I believe, covering the Preakness. 2016 was my first year starting with the Stronic Group and I did not cover Preakness that year because I started like the week before and was left by myself at Gulfstream while everybody else went to Preakness. So really baptism by fire. But so 2017 was my first time covering the Preakness. Obviously, I've been to many Preakness stakes prior to that um, as Maryland is not too far from Connecticut where I grew up. So fifth time covering the Preakness. And it's always a special week. It's always a lot of fun. It's always, I think, the kind of most relaxed of the three Triple Crown races. And the people in Maryland are just so wonderful. Uh, Some really good horses on both Friday and Saturday have been attracted this year. And looking forward to getting a chance to see them run and focus on the racing and focus on what's good about the Preakness and about this sport. So appreciate you tuning in. And we have a lot more coming up still in the weeks to come. I want to remind everybody too that LTN Global, a partner of ours, offers innovative TV production services that help racetracks raise their profile, bringing all the TV tricks they've learned from other sports into horse racing. LTN is a technology and production company that is helping racetracks create and distribute content at a high quality and low cost. And LTN offers distribution services to get tracks seen in more online and offline spaces than ever before. Visit LTNGlobal.com to learn more today. That'll do it on In the Ring with Acacia Courtney. As always, please share, message me if you have any ideas, suggestions, or anything that you'd like to hear on this podcast. And I'll see you next time.